Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and Game Sense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employers respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Falling in love is the best feeling in the world. You see stars, you feel giddy, but sometimes that makes you do crazy things, and sometimes that means murder. Just because a story starts out with Once Upon a Time doesn't mean it ends happily ever after. Welcome to Crazy in Love, a production of KT Studios and iHeartRadio. Today's guests are true crime producer Jeff Shane and Kirk Nermy. Kirk is a former public defender turned legal expert and author. During his time in the courtroom, he defended hundreds of individuals against serious felony charges. He rose to fame when he defended Jody Arias during her high-profile murder trial from 2012 to 2013. Since leaving the public defender's office, Kirk has written eight books, including Trapped with Miss Arias. All his books are available for purchase now. Kirk can be found online at kirknermy.com. Episode 19, The Case of the Living Girlfriend, The Hoarders, and The Mean Mom. By all accounts, Anne-Marie and Anthony Anastasi lived a nice, simple life. Both in their early 40s, the couple had been married for 18 years and had five kids from 7 to 17. 
Anthony worked as a contractor and Anne-Marie was a home health aide. However, a serious back injury caused Anthony to retire at a young age. To get more money, the couple started a business called Snakes Are Us. In this new business venture, they sold domesticated reptiles and also bred and sold kittens. With Anthony unable to go to work every day, he grew close with his kids, who he was caring for and nurturing. Anthony became especially tight with his 13-year-old daughter, Sarah. Sarah also loved animals, and all of his kids respected Anthony. After many years of living in Michigan, the couple decided to move to Maryland to be close to Anthony's father. Anthony and Anne-Marie had both grown up in the area, so it felt a bit like moving home. The pair and their five children settled into Lothian, Maryland. It's about 45 minutes outside of Washington, D.C. While they are close to the nation's capital, Lothian feels far away from the hustle and bustle. It's known for its rolling hills, and the small town can be called rural. The family settled into a five-bedroom rental home that sat on a big lot. Looking at the charming home on West Bay Front Road, it would be easy to imagine any family would thrive there. Neighbors describe the Anastasis as a quiet and loving family. An added bonus for the protective parents was the low crime rates in Lothian. However, while Anne-Marie attempted to keep her family safe, the real threat was already inside. Here's Jeff. So we know a little bit more about the family's backstory before they made the move to Maryland. Back in Michigan, Anthony was a volunteer youth hockey coach. And during one of the games, he ended up meeting a woman named Jacqueline Riggs. And despite being significantly younger than Anthony, Jacqueline was just 25, so about 15 years younger. She was very mature. She worked as a child care specialist and was soft, kind, and gentle in nature. She was described as being obsessed with her nieces and nephews. And perhaps Anthony liked her because she reminded him of a younger Anne-Marie. And the two struck up a friendship that eventually turned romantic. Soon, Anthony, who was married to Anne-Marie, invited Jacqueline into his marriage, and she had a threesome with the couple at least once. However, by all accounts, Anne-Marie was not into it. And she was kind of hoping that the move to Maryland would distance themselves from this extramarital situation and be a fresh start. But Anthony had other plans. In the summer of 2015, not long after settling in, Anthony actually moved Jacqueline from Michigan, states away, to D.C. to live in the family basement. Anne-Marie was understandably not really pleased with this situation, but she felt like she had no choice. Anthony kind of forced her into it. Kirk, to me, this sounds like a sister-wife type situation, and which I always thought was illegal, but maybe because they're not married, it's, it is legal. But is moving your mistress in to your house, are there any legal grounds that Anne-Marie would have to stop this or to do anything about it? Well, ultimately, I think it sounds like a sister-wife situation because it is a sister-wife situation. But ultimately, from a legal perspective, you can move anyone into your home. The only real possible legal ramifications of this would be the crime of adultery. But adultery is rarely prosecuted in Maryland. It's a misdemeanor, comes with no jail time, and the fine is all of $10. So you could imagine why the prosecutors in Maryland wouldn't want to go through all this production so somebody could whip out a $10 bill and leave it on the counter and walk off. So cheating on your spouse is actually a crime? 
In certain states, it can be, and in Maryland, it is a misdemeanor crime. Wow. So who would report that? Would Anne-Marie have reported that against Anthony? Somebody would have to report it, and then there would have to be proof and testimony, and there'd have to be a trial, ultimately. Right, you'd be more doing it out of spite, which for a family who has a fixed, limited income probably wouldn't be worth the trouble. Well, and you'd have to convince a prosecutor to take the case, because why would a prosecutor in the county want to take up a case of adultery, put on this trial for a $10 fine? That's wild. I never knew that it was illegal anywhere. I mean, it makes you a bad person, certainly, but um, I didn't know it was a misdemeanor. I also wonder, too, like, what do you know about divorce proceedings and like the legality of that? Because Anne-Marie also, you know, if she wasn't into this situation, she could have divorced him. But they have five kids. They don't have a ton of money. I imagine that process is expensive and difficult. Do you know anything about getting divorced? Well, sure. There's certainly exploring divorce is something she could have done. There's certainly options. Yes, it does cost money typically, but there are law school clinics. There are other places that take care of indigent people when they want a divorce or to move on. So Anne-Marie definitely had the choice to divorce him at this point in time. But she also probably loved him. It's messy with the kids. And she was maybe hoping that this was a temporary situation. Yeah, it's hard to say what exactly what was going on. Clearly, at some point in time, they were exploring this thruple relationship, and then it it fell apart. And Anne Marie was in a situation where I guess she didn't want a divorce, and maybe just hoped that eventually the mistress would move away. On the night of October fourth, twenty fifteen, Jacqueline had been living in the basement for a few months. With Anthony spending most nights locked downstairs with his paramour things were tense. That fateful night, Anne-Marie remembered hearing her husband fighting with Jacqueline. While she was curious, Anne-Marie tried to stay out of their drama. The next day, the mother of five had her usual busy morning. Anne-Marie made breakfast, drove carpool, took one child to the dentist, and then headed to the grocery store with her 13-year-old Sarah. Sarah had stayed home that day because she was feeling sick. When Anne-Marie and her daughter Sarah got back to the house, Anne-Marie made a terrifying discovery. Lying in bed with a bullet wound to his head was her husband Anthony. Anne-Marie called 911 and calmly told them it appeared Anthony was dead. When the police arrived, they confirmed he was in fact deceased. Anthony was on the couple's bed with a 45 caliber pistol lying next to his outstretched arm. A shell casing sat just inches away from a Bible on the ground. It was bagged for evidence. To every official on the scene, it appeared to be a suicide. Detectives also couldn't help but notice that the house looked less like a family home and more like a hoarder's paradise. Trash and junk piled high in each room. As police continued to search the house, they heard music coming from the basement. Who was down there, they asked Anne-Marie. A tenant, she told them. In the dark basement, loud heavy metal music blared out of the speakers, adding to the macabre nature of the room. Like upstairs, there was trash everywhere. But in the middle of the mess was the most horrifying thing of all. On a blood-soaked carpet, another body. The body was quickly identified as Jacqueline Riggs. In addition to the bloody carpet, there was blood on the walls, floor, and bed. The young woman had 42 knife wounds 
She was stabbed 20 times and slashed 22 more. Did someone break in and kill her? It didn't seem so. The outside door was locked and the window was screwed shut. It seemed to police that Anthony had murdered Jacqueline and then killed himself. But why, they wondered. So the police did standard procedure and brought in Anne-Marie, the person who found the body, for questioning. And despite having just found two dead bodies, one of which was her husband, she was surprisingly calm and open with the police. While she did tell them at the scene that Jacqueline was just a tenant, once in the police station, she pretty quickly changed her story and told the police everything about her kind of unusual living situation with Anthony having moved Jacqueline in from a different state to live in their house. She told them she wasn't comfortable with the situation, but because Anthony was controlling and emotionally abusive, she felt like she had to go along with it. She recounted one time that she had asked him to stop sleeping with Jacqueline, and in response, he held a gun to her head and demanded she leave the house. She feared that if she told anyone or questioned him, he would kill her. Anne-Marie also readily agreed to a gunpowder test and a polygraph test, and she quickly handed over her cell phone to the police. She really seemed to want to help with the investigation. Kirk, I mean, you've interviewed and you've witnessed a lot of interviews with people who have seen crimes and maybe been suspects in crimes. What do you make of Anne-Marie being so open and forthcoming with the police right away? Well, I would say she was open and forthcoming, but only to a point, only to the point where she could cast herself as Anthony's victim. The gun being held to her head, this this situation with the mistress, all these things that put her in the in cast her as a victim was the, were the things she was forthcoming with. Right. And I mean, we've talked about this before, but your advice to everyone is do not talk to the cops at all. Like hire a lawyer immediately. Right. I mean, and it, it is important that we have that opportunity not to talk to the police, whether you're guilty or innocent. And in this case, Anne-Marie was probably in one of those situations where she felt like maybe she would be a suspect because one of the victims was her husband and, and one was his mistress, right? So, you know, they don't want to glare further light of suspicion on them. So they, they make them think, they believe anyway, that they have committed the perfect crime, if you will. They don't want the police to look further. I think it's hard too, because I'm trying to put myself in that position. If the police wanted to talk to me about a loved one who was found dead, I would probably feel like I wanted to help as much as possible and give as much information but ultimately, that's not the best move, right? Like you want to have legal help to make sure you're not stepping in something you shouldn't be stepping in. Yeah, it's never the be best idea, even when you're not guilty, even when you didn't do anything, because we false confessions are real. These are trained professionals that know how to extract confessions or admissions, what have you. So yeah, it's never a good idea, guilty or innocent, to, to talk to the police when you're being interrogated in that kind of situation. Do you think that sometimes being too forthcoming is a red flag to police officers? She just found her husband dead and another body in her basement. She should be very emotional and she might not want to be talking, but she's an open book. And does that seem suspicious in any way? It could seem suspicious. I mean, it's hard to assess not being there to see her demeanor, what have you, because we know so much of communication is nonverbal, right? But certainly that we talk about not talking to the police because that gives them all the opportunity to raise whatever suspicions they have. They already have some, given her relationship to both these people. So obviously, the more she talks, if they detect anything that makes them suspicious, 
because they're looking for that, right? They're looking for something to further their suspicions, to deepen it. We, they call it confirmation bias within investigation. So somebody in that situation, certainly the police are looking to confirm their suspicions of her. I've heard that term confirmation bias, but just remind me what it means. Confirmation bias is when the police have an idea of who the suspect is, and they really look for evidence to support their suspicion rather than look at all the evidence objectively. They tunnel into the to the evidence that supports their vision of who the suspect is. So it's not necessarily a good thing to have confirmation bias because it means you're not looking at the, the crime as a whole. You're really just focused on one potential suspect. Right. And the police ultimately, when they act in confirmation bias, tunnel visions, maybe another way to put it for people to relate to, they're not looking hard enough at other acts of evidence. And this is how false confessions and wrongful convictions can happen because they are simply so convinced that this person did it that they don't really give objective credence to evidence that might just show that there's another suspect. Right. Because if you wanted to believe someone was guilty, then everything they did following that crime would make them seem guilty. Oh, she's too forthcoming. That means she's not emotional enough. She's you know not responding the way a, someone who just is in this situation, quote unquote, should be responding. Exactly. You'd have that preconceived idea and you'd be looking for things that supported that idea as opposed to an objective finder of fact, if you will. While Anne-Marie calmly spilled the beans to the detectives at the police station, a few rooms over, 13-year-old Sarah was having a very different experience. While talking to officials, the young teen acted erratically, at one point trying to run out of the building. There was a key piece of evidence that police wanted to ask Sarah about. It was a pregnancy test they found buried in the trash in the basement. Once she calmed down, Sarah told the police that she had heard Jacqueline telling her father she was pregnant. Sarah was enraged at the idea of her dad starting a new family. Here's Jeff. So Kirk, my question here is, I thought minors were not allowed to talk to the police without a lawyer or parent present. Is that not the case? Well, that is the general rule. It, really that it requires that a parent or be there or they give permission for their uh, child to uh, be interviewed or interrogated, whatever the situation might be. But strangely enough, in Maryland, back in 2015, when Sarah was being interviewed, no such restrictions existed. So the police were free to talk to Sarah all they wanted. We're going to take a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet. That's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. As a public defender, I mean, what age does someone become a viable witness? There's no hard and set rule. The person has to be able to understand what they're talking about. They have to be of age to do that. And so we see this come up a lot in sexual abuse cases when there is young victims. They have to have an orientation to what they're talking about in order to be a viable witness. There's no per se bar. You can't say, well, you know, a five-year-old can't testify because they're not competent because you think then all the crimes could be committed and they, they couldn't testify. So it's one of those things that has to be judged by the court if a witness is not competent. I mean, I imagine though you talk about understanding a 13 year old hopefully doesn't really understand having a mistress live downstairs and, you know, having an affair and that woman getting pregnant. Would that fall under that category of not necessarily being able to comprehend or understand that situation? No, think about it differently. Like she's really interviewing and possibly testifying to what she heard and saw. So she's able to understand the words, what she heard or saw, what have you. Like somebody might be able to testify, for instance, if she had witnessed this murder, she could testify to what she saw. She doesn't have to understand the full ramifications, the full emotional impact, the, the, the full depravity of the situation. She really only has to be able to understand and relay what he or she saw, in this case, what Sarah would be testifying to what she experienced. That makes sense. I wanted to ask you too, the mom and daughter kind of had different reactions, like different ends of the spectrum in terms of how you react. Anne-Marie was that rather calm, it seems like, and Sarah was emotional and erratic, as we heard. So in your experience, do people respond more commonly one way, or is that common that people can see the same thing and have completely different reactions once they're kind of sitting in that police station talking to officials about the crime? Yeah, I think we all experience trauma differently. It's based on our own history of trauma. Age is what we've talked about, perception, what have you. So all those factors go into it. So there's no quote unquote standard way 
that we we react to trauma or that someone would react to trauma. And that goes back to what I said earlier about confirmation bias, because if you have a belief that one person did it, you're going to start acting as if what they're doing or not doing is non-standard reaction or a suspicious reaction to the crime. And then you're going to look harder at that person. So yeah, there is no set response to trauma. And what do you make of police pressing a, a witness, I guess, which is what Sarah is, so hard? I mean, she's a young girl who just found out her dad killed himself at this point, and she's clearly emotional. Is it the right move to continue to ask her questions to try to get that information in a timely manner? Or do you think that they should give her like a break and kind of come back to it? You know, there's two ways to look at it. One, someone killed her father. And the freshest information is going to be the best information. So what she can relay to them to help solve the murder of her father is important. So you could see how justice would prevail in that regard. Certainly anybody in that situation when they've lost a loved one, they run the risk of traumatizing that individual, forcing them to bring it up. And that's the balance police have to straddle, which is one of the reasons why we see in a lot of states that they don't allow minors to be interviewed in this type of situation without a parent present or a guardian present to intervene because of the particular vulnerability of minors. While at first the police believed Anthony murdered Jacqueline and then turned the gun on himself, they soon realized that it could not have been a murder-suicide. A forensic lab studied the shell casing found near Anthony's body and determined it was from a 380 pistol, not a 45 caliber pistol, which was the type of gun found near Anthony. In fact, it would be physically impossible to use the type of bullet found in the gun in Anthony's arms. That meant he couldn't have killed himself because the murder weapon was nowhere near the scene. So this is a pretty stunning information and would definitely change the course of the investigation. And it did. At this point, all eyes turned back to Anthony's wife, Anne-Marie. And around the same time, they also got the results from all the ballistics testing they did on her with the gunpowder residue. And when the police told Anne-Marie they tested her clothes, she guessed pretty jokingly that they would find a lot of cat's milk on them. But that is not all they found. She had gunshot residue all over her clothes and hands. As it turns out, she also bombed that polygraph test she was so readily available to take. Her response to all this, that's weird. Kirk, what do you make of, she was so forthcoming in agreeing to all these tests, knowing that she would probably fail. And then she's so calm when she finds out that she is a major suspect. I, I mean, it's wild. What do you make of it? There's certainly different ways to look at this situation. One of them is going back to talking to the police and the right to remain silent. It is almost a certitude that if someone takes a polygraph test in a police interrogation, regardless of the results, they are going to confront that person with the idea that they weren't being truthful. They are going to use that polygraph test as a scientific evidence to say, if there's a denial, of course, if there's a confession, they're not going to use the polygraph, but they're going to go back with that polygraph and said, our machine says you are being deceptive. 
and that's a way for them to break someone down because they the police will use that as incontrovertible evidence that the person is lying well we know a polygraph isn't admissible in court they're not really ac and that's because of their inaccuracies they're not scientifically viable but they're used in that regard as a tactic by the police to try to garner a confession so the really results don't matter they they could put a person in there and not even you know just make them believe they were taking a polygraph test the result would be the same because the police just want to use it as a system of interrogation as a tactic so a polygraph test i mean it what it check it tests your heart rate when you answer yes or no to a question and the idea is that if you're lying your heart rate will spike yes there's a variation in your heart rate because you know certain questions are coming they get a baseline you know what's your name where do you live test questions where they know that there's the truth and then the polygraph measures a variance between your response heart rate things of that nature to the truthful responses versus you know if i said my name was i'm my name's sam elliot that would measure that would come across as as a lie because they know that there's a change in my body and so the idea that if you're a suspect and you think you have nothing to hide you would agree to this because you would imagine the test would reflect your experience. Yeah, but ultimately, again, no matter what, even if you pass with flying colors, it is almost a certitude that the police are going to come back and say you failed the polygraph test in order to try to get you to confess or to get more information out of you. Well, it wasn't just the polygraph that they were dealing with. They also looked at Anne Marie's cell phone because remember, she very readily handed it over. And the night in question, Anne-Marie had called Sarah, the 13-year-old daughter, for 10 minutes at 3 a.m. Anne-Marie told the police that this probably was a butt dial, but they did not believe so. I mean, my question is, Kirk, what kind of person is still talking to the police as all this is being presented to them? I mean, they're clearly circling in is what it feels like. And she's just continuing to answer the questions. I think people get to a point where they're so far down the road, they don't know how to go back. They don't know how to stop. And so they, they're already on this ride, so to speak. They've already telling this tale. So they keep looking for new ways to spin a particular tale. They make alterations. They try to lie their way around it because they think they've succeeded in doing that before. So they offer some explanation. It wasn't just the 3 a.m. call that the police were interested in. They also looked at Emory's text and discovered a lot of back and forth between her, Sarah, and an unsaved number. One of those texts was pretty damning. It said, quote, I'm going to slit the girl and bust the dad. But who was this unknown number who seemed to have murderous intentions for Anthony and Jacqueline? The unknown texter turned out to be 18-year-old Gabriel Struss. Gabriel was dating 13-year-old Sarah. Gabriel was something of a latchkey kid whose parents had abandoned him when he was seven. He lived with his grandfather, who described him as a good kid. However, it seemed Gabriel had somehow become intertwined with the twisted family. So pretty quickly, the cops wanted to talk to Gabriel, and when they confronted him, unlike the mother-daughter duo, he quickly confessed. He told them that his girlfriend, Sarah, had convinced him that her dad, Anthony, was an abusive cheater and the family needed his help. Anne Marie also got in on the action. She begged Gabriel to help, telling him that he would be able to live in their home once Anthony was dead. So it seemed like she was really offering him the stability of a home life and the love of a mother that he so craved. 
Gabriel also talked about the night of the murder. He said that Sarah and Anne-Marie picked him up and brought him back to the house. He then waited outside in the yard for hours till everyone fell asleep. Once Anthony and Jacqueline were fully asleep, Anne-Marie let him in the back door and handed him the gun and the knife. He headed downstairs first and killed Jacqueline. He said that she was asleep when he attacked her, but ended up waking up and started fighting back. When the police asked him why he needed to slash and stab her over 40 times, he said it was because he wanted to make sure she was fully dead. He then headed upstairs and shot Anthony. After the killing, Sarah, his girlfriend, drove him home and he went to bed and had a normal night. Kirk, is a confession like this a slam dunk for the police to put the nail in the coffin, so to speak, for Anne-Marie, Sarah, and Gabriel? Yeah, ultimately, I think this is the biggest puzzle piece in in, in making this picture of, of who done it uh, come to life. Because we think about this, you know, we have that electronic footprint of the cell phone and the text messages talking about slitting the girl's throat and shooting the dead, which is exactly what happened here. The confession was detailed. He gave details about this crime that probably only the killer would know. So this really does, in essence, complete the picture and make this case a slam dunk for the state. And you've worked with and dealt with, I would imagine, a fair amount of criminals over your time as a public defender. Putting yourself in Gabriel's shoes, I mean, on the one hand, he's barely an adult and he had a bad upbringing and it seemed like he was maybe manipulated by Anne-Marie into doing this under the guise of, you know, he was helping the family and he would get something out of it. He would get love. But he's also a brutal killer. I mean, he's killed someone in a heinous, heinous way. Like, how do you reconcile those two conflicting things about him? I mean, sometimes that's hard to do because we talk about the actions of Gabriel being so horrific, right? He murdered two people in a brutal fashion in a quest for love and a chance to uh, have a, the family that he never had. So it, while his motivations are sympathetic and, and certainly they could be even more so if we knew, you know, if we knew more about his mental health history, what was going on with Gabriel given this environment, what kind of trauma has Gabriel experienced? So you're certainly sympathetic that he made that choice as, a, as an attorney, but in, at the same time as an attorney, uh, sympathy doesn't come into play and ultimately his actions are what are at issue. So that is really what the attorney has to, to deal with most prominently. Let's stop here for another break. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Signing up and playing is so easy. Simply sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you can get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matter more than ever. Place your money line, prop, and parlay bets with the king of sports books today. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets. If you don't win your first bet, that's right, up to $1,500. Again, sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus in President Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. That's 1-800-GAMBLER.
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. And I want to talk to you about Anne-Marie because what she did after the murder is also very interesting. I mean, when Gabriel left, she then planted the gun on Anthony, as we know, the one that was found by his outstretched arm, except she somehow got confused and planted the wrong gun which, as we know, led to kind of the downfall of this whole thing. What's also so interesting and messed up is that the next morning, we know she went about her pretty much her normal routine. She showered, she made breakfast for her kids, she drove them to school, all while her husband was dead upstairs and his mistress was bleeding downstairs. Again, Kirk, you've worked with a lot of criminals. What does this say about Anne-Marie? Is she just a sociopath, a psychopath? Or what is she, just evil? Well, she could be all of the above, but I think female killers and and Anne-Marie being one of them, obviously, even though she didn't really commit the murder, she orchestrated all of this. I feel like they lack remorse on a deeper level. To them, their victim really deserved their fate. So their actions were justified, not something to be ashamed of. So in her mind, she was Anthony's victim and was really kind of recovering from the victimhood that she was experiencing. To her, she was the real victim in this case, despite the fact that two dead bodies were found in her home based on a plot that she orchestrated. So if you had to surmise her frame of mind, she's justified this because she's the victim of this guy who does not deserve to live. Exactly. And he put her in the position where she had to do it and she has to deal with the trauma and get on with her life and try to deal with it as best she could. We can see throughout the entire course of this investigation Anne-Marie cast herself as a victim to anyone who was open to that casting. Anne-Marie entered what is called an Alfred plea, where she maintained her innocence but conceded the state had enough evidence to convict her. Gabriel was sentenced to 60 years as part of a plea deal. Anne-Marie got two life sentences to be served concurrently, but with all but 60 years suspended, she will ultimately serve 60 years. As for Sarah, she remains in a juvenile facility and will be eligible for release at the age of 21. 
Kirk, I wonder, is this a good deal, you think, for Anne-Marie and Gabriel? You know, I don't see how it's a good deal for Anne-Marie, uh, given her age when she went in and given the extent of the term. It looks like Gabriel's two life terms would be 60 years. So with good time and things of that nature, there's a possibility that Gabriel could get out. But it's hard to see that there's a lot of tangible benefit. Maybe just not having to endure the trial meant that much to Anne-Marie. Would the death sentence be on the table for either of them, you think? And maybe this was a way to avoid that? No, the, Maryland has not had the death penalty since 2013. So by the time they went to trial, there was no prospect of a death penalty that could be held over their head. Interesting. So really, if they had gone to trial, it seems like, at least Anne-Marie, what would she have to lose other than putting her kids through this more trauma than she already had? Yeah, you know, sometimes that's enough for people when even they, they're going to get life sentence with or without a trial, sparing themselves the embarrassment, maybe sparing family members the embarrassment, what have you, is incentive enough because ultimately, you know, if, if I was Anne-Marie's attorney sitting there talking to her and all this, I'd say, no, you're not going to win a trial, so do you want to put everyone through this? That's your choice. And some people make the choice not to put every, other people through it. And what do you make of 13-year-old Sarah going to a juvenile facility for eight years? She was involved in this killing, obviously, but she's 13 years old. And what kind of trauma has she experienced given this situation? I mean, she's living in this home that is, uh, you know, compared to a hoarding situation. Her mother is willing to kill in order to alter her life circumstances. Her father is willing to bring in a mistress into the home and impregnate her at the same time. So these are the conditions she's living in. And we talk about, I couldn't imagine the impact that this would have on a 13 year old, not only at this point in time, but all the circumstances leading up to this. Remember, this wasn't just a new situation, you know, the hoarding, the reptile raising, all these things that these people were doing must have not created the sanest environment for Sarah. So this period of time to me gives her a chance to maybe get the help she needs, mature a little bit, and hopefully live a productive life. Because ultimately, her level of criminality in this case is the smallest of, of the three parties. And, and given her age, I think it's a great outcome for her and, and hopefully one that will set her on a better path. While Anne-Marie has shown little remorse for her crimes, Gabriel has been public about his shame. Quote, I thought what I was doing would make me a hero, he wrote, when in reality, it only made me a monster. Shameless plug. If you're enjoying Crazy in Love, leave us a review. Season three of the Piketon Massacre, Return to Pike County is in the works. We want to hear from you for the upcoming season. Do you have a story to tell, a connection to Pike County, or is there another case local to Pike County that you can't let go of? Please email info at kt-studios.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at kt underscore studios. Crazy in Love is produced by Stephanie Lidecker, Jeff Shane, Chris Graves, and me, Courtney Armstrong. Editing and sound design by Jeff Twa. Crazy in Love is a production of iHeartRadio and KT Studios. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Stay safe, lovers. From BBC Radio 4, 
Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. 